Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Legal gambling in Texas? Well, don't bet on it. Okay, stop rolling your eyes. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, and he's Jeremy Wallace. You can find me at quorumreport.com, and he, of course, is at houstonchronicle.com and San Antonio Express News. That's uh, expressnews.com. Uh, Jeremy, I'm not going to say one word about the election. What election? Are you <laughs> Are you going to talk about it? No, I'm still in recovery mode. I, I like. Okay. It, it's, yeah, let's just you, ha- you have a hangover from it. that. There you go. You have a hangover from that. So we're not going to talk about that. I'm only I'm only bringing it up to say I'm not going to talk about it. But we'll, we'll see if I can get away with that for the hour or so here. Um, I'm reporting from Las Vegas today for several reasons. One, we are going to get into gaming, as the industry calls it. Normal people call it what, Jeremy? Gambling. gambling? <laughs> yes. Yeah, right. gam- I like how, how is it- gaming considered? How is what? Yeah. yeah How's gaming any better? Yeah, the, the gambling turns into gaming when you're trying to win over places mm-hmm. that are – think of it yeah. as just casinos in every gas station. <laughs> yes, right. Like like Oklahoma where I was uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, and I, look, I'm in Vegas for research. Let's put it that way. Uh, this gambling issue has been debated in Texas for my entire life. Right? People have uh, always said uh, that – a couple of things. One – We've got all this tax revenue that's flowing out of the state, billions of dollars. If you go to uh, the casinos in Oklahoma, you will see uh, all Texas license plates in the parking lot. Same thing if you go to Lake Charles in Louisiana. And believe me, I have seen a lot of people from Texas here in Las Vegas, a lot of people from Houston, a lot of people from DFW, and a few people from Austin as well. Um, And I can tell you, and I was, you know, looking at one of your stories uh, from recent, from uh, the past couple of weeks, Jeremy, about uh, the Sands uh, folks and other gaming interests that are heavily lobbying the legislature, and they want full-on casinos, right? It's hard for me to believe that that's going to happen. But what what were the numbers in there? They're, they're huge. I think you uh, put it as uh, something like there's an army of lobbyists who are working on that. Yeah, it's it's really astounding. It's like, look, you, like you said, you know, since the '90s, I've heard gaming issues and gambling issues in Texas going back to remember in 1991, we got the lottery, you know, it's like we were like 40 years behind every other state in America. So you can see it's going to be a slow process. That was a big step ahead. Yeah, exactly. So we've always had people say, Hey, we're going to expand even more, but like, but you know, they haven't really put the effort into it. But this time around, there's like, there's over 300, you know, gaming lobbyists like roaming around the Capitol now. And, you know, Las Vegas Sands alone has 72, which is more lobbyists than anybody else in the in the lobbying corps right now. Uh, so that's just really? kind of shocking to see like anybody has more lobbyists than AT and T or you know some of the big names in Texas that you typically see on that list. But right now it's Las Vegas Sands that sees some sort of possibility. You know, I think probably largely based on all the money they have thrown into campaign donations. You know, here over the last two to three years, they see some opening that you know i might not see fully as much as they do right now 
Well, and you were first to report that Governor Abbott was at least opening the door just to crack on that. We talked about that on the show previously, but it might have been drowned out. Uh, imagine this drowned out by all the election news. That's why I'm not talking about it today. Uh, but tell us what he said at that time when you talked to him. Yeah, absolutely. What they said at the time was that, uh, like, here's their direct quote. We don't want slot machines at every corner store. We don't want Texans to be losing money that they need for everyday expenses. And we don't want any type of mm -hmm. crime that could be associated with gaming. But if there is a way to create nope. a very professional entertainment option for Texans, Governor Abbott would take a look at it. That is the little crack in the door, you know, that every gaming company said, oh, gosh, here's our chance. And so that 72 lobbyists could turn into 82 based off of that quote, I think. <laughs> Yeah, and I can read that quote uh, a couple of ways, and I think they're not in contradiction uh, to each other the way I would read them. One is that what he would like to see, if there is any legislation on uh, casino gambling that you would see, uh, something like what I see out my out my window right now here in Las Vegas, which is the wind and the Encore Tower, right? You would want to see something like that and not, as you said, you know, one, uh, you know, the slot machine in every uh, gas station around the state. The other way I would read it is this. He's saying the companies with the most money are welcome to come play here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and our and our loyal Houston readers, you know, can you know think of this as just as uh, an open invitation to tell Tillman Fertitta, I am listening. It's like I'm willing to listen to your operation. Tillman Fertitta, of course, is Landry mm -hmm. Entertainment, which, you know, of course, people think of mm -hmm. as a restaurant, but also it happens to have uh, the Golden Nugget Casino, <laughs> it's like, which yeah. most Texans mm -hmm. don't kind of understand. But so and he's really in tight with, you know, the Abbott administration. You know, he's appointed him to several mm -hmm. positions, including at the University of Houston. Uh, so he has. He has the governor's ear, but he doesn't have casinos, but he would love, I'm sure, to have a resort casino uh, in some place in Galveston, close to the beach, you know, close to Houston. Oh, sure. Yeah, I I read that quote uh, as sort of like the bat signal for billionaires. Yeah. Like, come on, you bring us bring us your check, bring us your campaign checks and, you know, we'll do the whining and dining of the legislature and all of that. Um, there are a few reasons I think that casinos don't have any shot, uh, certainly this next legislative session. Number one, it hasn't been listed as a priority uh, by any of the state's leadership. That, that, that's number one. Um, number two, uh, it does require a constitutional amendment, which means that you have to have. And did you know this, Jeremy? You have to have a hard 100 votes in the Texas House. It's, it's not one. It's not two thirds of of those who are present. It's 100 members of the Texas House would have to vote to send a, a ballot uh, you know, proposition to voters uh, in the next election. Uh, and look, if you look at the polling, Texans would probably vote for it, but you can never get to two-thirds in the Texas House and two-thirds in the Texas Senate for that based on what we know about where our legislators are uh, on this. And look, the lieutenant governor just isn't for this at all. Um, in fact, and we'll talk about sports betting in a second, he has sort of at least privately, is my understanding, Patrick has uh, sort of opened the door just to crack as well on sports betting, but is nowhere close to supporting anything that would, uh, you know, uh, allow for uh, full-on casino gambling in Texas. And another reason that you have, uh, you know, sort of um, muted support in the legislature for casino gambling is that, and this is sort of, uh, you know, down in the weeds, uh, really peeling the onion on this. Um, no legislator wants to be on the wrong side of the billionaire in their town. 
And when you start talking about a piece of legislation to allow for casinos, that means there would be a certain number of licenses for them. And all these billionaire guys want to run a casino because basically what you do with a casino is you have a mountain of money that is a magnet for more money. Right. It's, it, that's why it takes a billionaire to be able to do this stuff. Right. And so and, and it's interesting that you know, there were jokes about Donald Trump in his uh, unsuccessful attempts at running casinos in New Jersey and his uh, unsuccessful un- uh, attempt to get a, a gaming license here in Nevada, where he does have Trump Tower. People don't know this. The Trump Tower in Las Vegas does not have a casino in it. And it was because the billionaires across the street from him didn't want him to have a casino. They, they thought that he'd be an embarrassment for the gaming industry based on what they had seen with his casinos in New Jersey. Um, I think the fact that you would have maybe four or five licenses that might be allowed for casinos in Texas means that you'd have a lot of unhappy billionaires in places like Dallas-Fort Worth, El Paso, Houston, et cetera, who would like to be in on the action. Yeah, and, and the thing about any sort of discussion on gaming, you can't just talk about one little corner of it and think that's where the conversation is going to end. It's like any, you know, it's like the experience I had in Florida, in other states, in New York. It's like once you start start talking about casino gaming, you have to be, you know, well, what about the paramutuals? What about the horse tracks that already exist? What are they going to get out of this? And then the, you know, maybe the biggest concern, you know, for a lot of people will be the Native American casinos it's like it's like what access do they have we have one casino in texas right now which is the, the kickapoo tribe uh, uh operates that you know down along the valley or not in the valley uh in eagle pass and like you know those folks you know, whatever you allow other gaming options to have they're going to be able to have that option too uh it's like and and but also other gaming op- options in San Antonio could destroy those casinos. So it, it's a, there's all kinds of elements to this issue that have to be worked out. This is not a simple bill. This is like, you know, really trying to play some sort of like major game. And the one thing we've kind of learned in covering c- gaming casinos and all that over the last 10 years is that those groups will stab each other in the back in a heartbeat <laughs> you know it's like if, if yes. you know if, if they if it looks like the uh one gaming company is going to get the advantage the knives are out you know if the paramutuals are going to be left in the cold you know the knives are out it's like and i think uh, dan patrick actually said something to that effect uh, a couple years ago uh when this first was coming up and he's like until the gaming people can kind of get together you know and kind of work as a team and not just completely trying to undercut each other um, it's a tough sell, and that's and that's a big. If they can all work together, <laughs> that's a tough thing, you know. By the way, Jeremy, thank you for correcting that Eagle Pass is not in the valley because I would have gotten an ugly note from people about that. Um, on the specific question of sports gaming, right? Let, let, let's let's go. Let's uh, let's narrow this down a little bit. Maybe this could happen. And I'm going to give this almost a 0% chance of happening also, but but maybe it would have a better shot than, than full-on casinos. Can we get mobile sports gaming in Texas? In other words, this is doing it on your cell phone. Can you place bets? And remember, uh, Mattress Mac was complaining about having to drive to Louisiana and go to a gas station there so that he could open the app on his phone and ma- place the bet for the Astros to win the World Series and then drive back to Houston, which is what you have to do now. I happened to be in Louisiana uh, on the day that they opened sports books uh, at the uh, casinos in Louisiana after they legalized that. And there were people who drove from 
for example, in Shreveport, drove to Dallas that day, that morning, to go place a bet and then drive right back to Dallas. People are nuts about sports betting, okay, and passionate about it. And they love that they can do it on their phone. They don't have to go to a casino. So if you're against all the, you know, the things that might come along with a casino, sports betting might be something that's more palatable, right? Who is it that is now pushing for legalization of sports gambling in Texas? Hi, I'm Governor Rick Perry, and I'm joining the Texas Sports Betting Alliance in support of legalizing mobile sports betting in the great state of Texas. Wait a minute. He has been against this in the past. As a as an evangelical Christian, you can go, and I don't have any of the quotes in front of me, Jeremy, but anybody is welcome to, to look it up. Just punch in Rick Perry. Go to Google, the, the Google, as he would call it. Go to the Google and punch in Rick Perry against gambling, and all this stuff will come up. So why is he now changing his mind? Now, Texas is built on the core principle of individual freedom. And we pride ourselves on being an economic powerhouse in the nation. Legalizing mobile sports betting in Texas will finally allow the state to protect consumers from illegal offshore betting sites while keeping the money generated from betting in Texas to benefit Texans. Legalizing mobile sports betting will uphold our state's guiding principles and give Texans the voice they deserve on this issue. On the last part, just like I said with casinos, any expansion of gambling in Texas requires a constitutional amendment, which means two-thirds of the House and Senate have to agree to send it to voters. And I don't see that happening for a variety of reasons, Jeremy, but they are going to make a huge push on this. And I do think that with Perry on board, it gives this more cred with Republicans than it might otherwise have. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And and, and there's another hurdle in this. It's, it, it seems small on the surface, but the uh, Texas Republican Party flat platform, like you know, prohibits any expanded gaming. And so you could run like a file of the Republican, you know, the, the actually established Republican Party. That's not a death sentence, you know, for for everybody. Obviously, you can kind of even if you're going against right. it. But it's like it's just one more thing to kind of worry about in a primary election down the road if you're in a conservative area uh, that you know you went against the, the the party platform to allow gaming everywhere. So it's just it's just like another hurdle, you know. And the so there's a lot of things to overcome, you know, to try to wrangle those votes in a Texas legislature where, like you have said over and over again, this is still a primary state. You know, it's like people are, mm-hmm. you know, worried about winning your primary first and foremost than you ever are worrying about the Democrat, you know, in the general election. So the first thing to do is sort out, like, am I going to be in the good graces of the Republican Party or I've got to fight some sort of censure <laughs> for going against the platform, you know, and whatever else. Well, and the other thing that I think uh, creates uh, problems for this is that, as I understand it, based on my reporting, uh, the thinking of the lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick, is that he doesn't want sports betting to be done online. He thinks that, and this is my understanding, he thinks that it should only be at retail locations. Um, so, for example, you might have uh, a setup, uh, you know, at the you know at the Rockets Arena and Houston Texans games. You might be able to go, you know, place a bet either at the stadium or near the stadium. Same thing for Cowboys games, et cetera. Uh, but it's my understanding, and he's not the only one who thinks this, by the way, that kids shouldn't be able to do it on their phones. And so, if that's the case, that would undermine everything that you know, Rick Perry is talking about. And I don't know that the uh, the people and the entities that are involved with the sports betting alliance, that, they, that they're that they interested in having it uh, be not online. Although, 
as you said, Jeremy, this this is a long shot. Either of these casinos and just you know sports betting, it's all long shot stuff. And so maybe if the Senate would consider something that doesn't allow for it online, but there could be retail locations, they should just take it because that's a step in the direction that they want. Yeah, and th- again, there's a lot to unpack and all that. It's like I'll be, it'll be interesting to see how they kind of craft this again. You know, what kind of alliances do they create? You know, to to try to get that done. You know, it's like that. That's sports. You know, it's kind of like what Perry said in there. You know, trying to like, you know, we're helping these gamblers so they don't have to go overseas <laughs> and place a bet with some shady organization. So the the idea of like helping people with gaming addictions by helping them gamble mm-hmm. here <laughs> and. You know, lots of social issues. Obviously, anytime you're dealing with gaming issues, mm-hmm. it's like you're going to have you know, you know yeah. discussions about crime and social service problems mm-hmm. that happen. Anytime you're yeah. in some sort of gaming area, it's like it's all real. You know, it's like there's a lot of studies, and you know, uh, like in every 75 mile radius around a gaming center or paramutual, there are issues. You know, it's like, and you got to address that. And there's going to be people who, you know, with with the churches and, you know, the religious community who are going to be fighting it. So there's all kinds of things that mm-hmm. have to be overcome in that. And none of it is small. Right. Here, here in Las Vegas, as I walk around and you see all of the marketing for the different casinos, come in, have a great time. It's pictures of, you know, all these people just partying at a craps table. You know, somebody's smoking a cigar at a at a slot machine. Not that I can identify with that. Um, you see all these people having fun. But then at the bottom of the marketing piece, there's always a line that says gambling addiction, question mark, call this number. Right. So they they even recognize that they have and, you know, there have been, uh, you know, uh, things that have been done uh, from a government standpoint to push them in the direction of addressing the gambling addiction problems that go along with it. The other thing that I think is a huge challenge for this issue, this session is there's no fiscal argument to be made. The state is a wash in cash. We d- this is not one. This is not 2011, when it was a budget cutting session, and they were looking for revenue anywhere they could and looking to cut the budget anywhere they could. This session, they have as much. And if you and think of it this way, Jeremy, extra money in the budget, the the surplus that they are going to see come January may be around 45 billion dollars. Now, why do I say it's that high? In the general revenue, you're looking at something around 30 billion. And in the Economic Stabilization Fund, which we know as the Rainy Day Fund, which is a terrible name for it, by the way. People shouldn't call it that. When, when you when you call something a Rainy Day Fund, that means that you would only use it in emergencies. But that's not what the Economic Stabilization Fund is for. The people who wrote the bill to create the ESF, the, the, the state savings account, what they wrote it for was when times are tough and revenue is down, they, they recognize that demand for services from the government goes up. So they would need to have money set aside to pay for things, right? So that's just my little sermon about that. Soapbox goes back to the side of the room here. I'm off of it now. So when it comes to how much money they have, Jeremy, the lieutenant governor was talking about it this week. And he said, and I think this is, this is interesting and worth talking about. He said that legislators have an opportunity this session coming up in January to do things that can shape the state for the next century because of how much extra money we have. And he talked about a variety of his uh, priorities then. He said he wasn't speaking specifically. He didn't have any specific uh, legislation he wanted to talk about just yet. He said, these are just sort of ideas. Uh, And he said, in interesting fashion, he said that, look, it's up to the 181 members of the legislature to write the legislation, to come up with exactly how this is going to work. But he said, look, we've got to address 
property taxes, which is always one of his big issues. He, he rode to power on that issue back in 2006 and seven when he became a state senator and then later became lieutenant governor in 2014 into 15. Um, he talked about uh, more funding for rural Texas, which I thought was very interesting. He talked about uh, a fund for law enforcement sheriff's departments in rural Texas that don't have what they need. He talked about more mental health funding for rural Texas and his focus on that. And he said something like this, not a direct quote, but he said something like, rural Texas is really the heart of who we are, which is, and I'm from rural Texas, I'm from the country. And I'm, I'm here to tell you just objectively, it's not really the heart of what Texas is anymore as a rapidly urbanizing state, right? I mean, the explosive growth is not where I'm from in Wharton County, or out in far west Texas, it's in Houston, it's in DFW, it's in San Antonio, Austin, et cetera. Uh, and so really where we are now, I think, that, and this is interesting to me anyway, is, is this sort of balance between not Republicans and Democrats so much as it is between urban Texas and rural Texas. And I think part of what Patrick was talking about is striking the balance. And he's putting the emphasis on rural Texas for a political reason, of course, because as you have pointed out, Rural Texas is the backstop for Republicans in this state, in a changing state where, look, we had a normal – I'm almost – I'm not going to talk about it. What happened this year was typical for an for. Are you talking about the election? For politics. Are you talking about that election, Scott? Nah. Is that what it is? <laughs> oh, man. In future elections, Republicans need – I'm not talking about this election. In future elections <laughs> – Thank you for doing that. Uh, now I'm now I'm forward looking. In future elections, Jeremy, Republicans cannot in this state afford to have uh, rural Texas not solidly in their corner and also really excited to vote for Republicans. Right? Yeah, absolutely. It's like you know, it's like you just see the numbers in those areas. It's like there's clearly a constituency in those areas that want more services or more care for their areas, even though the urbanization is happening and the diversification of the state is happening. You see those areas. You saw it in the governor's race. It's like it wasn't just because of, you know, Beto O'Rourke, you know, going to those places. But even before he got there, people were going, hey, are we getting our fair share out here? It's like is Texas Tech yeah. University being treated the same as the other universities are? You know, the, the rural hospitals, is that a concern you know as those things are shutting down that it's taking people you know hours to get to a hospital you know if they had covid you know it's like how do you get your treatments if there are no rural you know hospitals left for you it's like and so all those questions like, like are kind of like you know like expect to hear rick perry uh, not rick perry uh, uh charles perry uh the state senator you know, come up yeah. a lot you know because he has he's been talking about those issues for years and i think maybe you know, like, you know, he, he should have a little bit more of a platform given how much, you know, the, the you know, these were issues, you know, during this campaign season. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, look, uh, there was a huge appeal to the rural parts of the state. I'm going to uh, remind everyone that in the past few months, without being specific about why he was out on on you know, his bus tour, the lieutenant governor did tell said, this is our reporting. He did tell senators to tamp down the uh, talk about school vouchers, which is, it's not that people in rural Texas are, are, are against school vouchers. It's that, and they generally are, even though they're Republicans. Um, but it's that vouchers complicate the politics in rural Texas for Republicans. They don't, they don't really want to discuss it there. That's why the Lieutenant governor did say on the record with our friend Chad Hasty on his radio show, that if a voucher bill is passed, which is not, you know, again, it's it's complicated in rural Texas. That's the way I want to the way I want to say that because it's important that 
that I get the nuance of this correct? Because there are people who support a school voucher program. It, in fact, um, in rural Texas, the proponents of it will say that, hey, look, when it was a ballot uh, question for Republicans in the primary, that rural Texans love the idea of a school voucher. Um, but those are not the only people who live in rural Texas, obviously. The lieutenant governor said on the record with Chad Hasty that rural Texas would be exempt from a school voucher program if it passes the Senate, right? I do think that a lot of this talk about rural Texas and making um, investments there as far as mental health and you know, doing more for law enforcement and all of the other things that he talked about, you know, uh, doing what I think a lot of people agree with, which is uh, putting a school, a school system like the Texas Tech system, uh, putting them in line for more state dollars the way that UT and A&M get that money, uh, get the billions of dollars, uh, which, by the way, comes out of the ground in West Texas. That's that's oil and gas money that's going to UT and to and to Texas A&M. So they feel in in West Texas, they feel screwed on that because Texas Tech doesn't get any of it, right? So that there are Republican law, lawmakers who want to you know correct for that. I think that because school quote school choice and school vouchers are something that's important to the lieutenant governor. He's talked about it for his entire political career. I, I think just about uh, he wants to front load a lot of promises to rural Texas so that when there is a school voucher bill in the legislature, he can say to them, look at all these other things that we're also doing for you. Uh, and on top of that, we're going to leave rural Texas out of whatever bill we're going to do. So y'all folks in the country, you don't have to worry about that. Yeah. And a you know, very complicated message, <laughs> right? You know, it's like, you right. know, how do you have vouchers, yes. but not for some people? You know, it's like that's that's going to be a tough discussion because like there are going to be some rural areas that do have private schools. Right. You know, it's just like, you know, I'm not saying all of them, but you get some of those you know, those edges of San Antonio as like, you know, people might want, you know, pr you know, a chance to use a voucher to go to someplace else. You know, it's like even if it does take a little mm -hmm. bit more of a drive. So, yeah, it's like that's going to be complicated as they try to figure out how to hit that sweet spot of, you know, only dealing with you know, some school districts and not others. You remember we have, we have like over 1,300 school districts in the state of Texas. So yeah, it's like anytime you're dealing with any sort of educational reform that's this big, you got 1,300, you know, school districts that you've got to kind of manage through this thing. And some of them are very rural and it's hard to kind of see through even things like high school football. Like how does a, you know, a voucher program affect high school, you know, football? Sounds small mm -hmm. in the big dream of public policy, but a big deal if you're in a Odessa Permian, you know, football game. <laughs> you know, those people do care about that. It sure is. And you don't usually see conservative lawmakers and conservative activists criticize the lieutenant governor of Texas. But when he said that rural Texas would be exempt, I saw some of the most conservative members of the legislature say that he was wrong, that that if you're going to do it, you do it for everybody. So that's a big gnarly issue that we'll keep an eye on as we get into the session in January. I was starting to get a little tired of all the stories about what Democrats did wrong this year. I, I, I don't know how to put it any other way. In Texas, first of all, what you're doing wrong is running statewide as a Democrat. <laughs> if you're openly Democratic, you're going to run into issues running statewide in Texas. That's, that's number one. I saw some coverage, Jeremy, about how Democrats didn't focus enough on immigration, that this is an issue that resonates with people outside the Republican base. And if you go back to 2005, 2006, when former Governor Perry – who comes up once again during the show here, when former Governor Perry 
when he was running for re-election at that time in 06, he put the focus on the border. We've played the audio of it here before on the show. There were In 2006 and in 2010, he had basically the same ad, which was just him standing on the Rio Grande in his Carhartt jacket and saying, if Washington won't secure this border, then Texas will. And it was really an appeal to the base. And since that time, the base of the Republican Party has remained inflamed about that more than anything else. And there's not a close second, right? I mean, there are some other things that boil up here and there, but immigration and border security is numero uno, and not just in Texas, but all across this great land, all across the United States. Republicans care about that first, right? And you see this from the governor now with Governor Abbott. And you see it from Ron DeSantis, who had to come find immigrants in Texas to send to other places. Well, right? Where did no, he send no, no, them? Like, like he Martha's, didn't, Martha's Vineyard? Yeah, he didn't need to come to Texas. There are, there are migrants in Florida that he could have picked up. He just chose to come to San Antonio like everybody else chooses to come to San Antonio because it's a great place. Collect some people and like, you know, who knows who they were. Didn't matter. <laughs> he just needed to have some sort of photo op that matches up with, you know, Greg Abbott. Because because like you said, the this immigration issue and the border issue it's one thing where greg abbott gets a lot of national attention and a lot of appeal you know because of what you're just saying it's like he is kind of cornered the market on the border security issue because he's from texas mm -hmm. and this is an issue all texans care about so now you do have some democrats saying that they need to work with republicans on the issue for example uh congresswoman veronica escobar from el paso texas um said that look it was a stunt when the you know when you have Abbott sending and, and DeSantis sending migrants to other places on buses. She said that, that that that's ridiculous. And she said that when Kevin McCarthy, the GOP leader uh, in Washington, uh, when he went to El Paso, that that was a stunt too. That he's just he, they're all stunting on the border. They're not really interested in solutions. That's what she was saying. But she did say she would be willing to work with Republicans on serious issues that are connected to this. For example, she said that Republicans and Democrats ought to be able to agree that there's a lot that law enforcement uh, officers are doing on the border that they shouldn't be doing, right? That, that, that they're having to do things like prepare meals for people and, and, you know, fill out paperwork for people. And it's, it's too much. We don't have enough uh, law enforcement officers to be doing all of this and that civilians could do it instead. You could have civilian employees instead of law enforcement working on those things. Escobar talked to Fox News about it. And Congresswoman Escobar says what should be happening is we should be hiring civilians to do these humanitarian roles to free up our Border Patrol agents. Take a listen to what she had to say civilianizing that processing so that we don't have men and women who are law enforcement uh, agents doing data processing, uh, you know, warming up meals, uh, you know, basically performing humanitarian functions that would be better performed by civilian personnel. It and Congresswoman Escobar said the way the situation is right now, it's not fair to the migrants. It's not fair to Border Patrol. Border Patrol has started hiring some of these civilians. They've got about 900 of them right now. Border Patrol sources tell me they'd like to see a lot more. Congresswoman Escobar says she'd like to see that applied all across the southern border. Her bottom line, she says to Kevin McCarthy and Republicans, if you want to work on solutions, give her a call. She's ready to talk. I have a feeling that that may not happen, Jeremy, <laughs> that when it, when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to immigration and border security, this is something that uh, Republicans and Democrats for the entire time I've been covering it, they have found rare uh, agreement 
it, it has been instances have been few and far between when Republicans and Democrats got together on something that was related to immigration and border security. Uh, I'm thinking all the way back to remember when they would they would have the bills. It was always the gang of this and that. When you're talking about something that is related to border security and cartel activity, maybe your legislation shouldn't be called the gang of whatever. But it was it'd be the gang of eight or the gang of 12 or the gang of whatever in the Senate had figured out that, that they were going to, uh, you know, support a specific proposal on immigration. And you'll have those who say, look, you've got to have a path to citizenship for people who are already here, uh, who are undocumented. You need to do something about folks who have been here not just for you know, a year or two, but for decades and, uh, and still don't have documentation. Um, at the same time, you need to do more on border security. I'm starting to think that we may have reached the point where we're spending sufficient, you know, sufficient amounts of money on border security, right? billions and billions of debt. The state of Texas – in the last year, when the legislature was not even in session, has appropriated something like $6 billion for border security that was on top of what was already in the budget uh, you know, before that, from, from the last legislative session. We're spending so much on border security here in Texas that in a lot of ways, we're supplanting whatever the federal government would have been doing. But that's also with the Border Patrol there as well, right? And so at some point, there has to be some recognition that you could – line up border patrol and dps and every local law enforcement officer shoulder to shoulder from brownsville to el paso and we would still have an immigration issue in this country right if people don't just come that way right you would have to shut down all the uh, all the all the border crossings oh wait we tried that remember how that went do you remember that that was this year? So much, so many things happened this year. It was this year yep. that basically the border crossings were shut down in Texas, and how that went was people didn't have groceries, uh, you know, at HEB, right? You had a, you had a panic and a shortage of all these things because when you listen, I when I go around the state and I talk to Republican voters and I talk to as many voters on all sides as I can, and this is not all Republican voters, but I have talked to people who vote in Republican primaries, when you would say, hey, do you like the cheap stuff that's on the shelves at Walmart? If you do, you can't shut down the border crossings. And they would look at you blank-faced and say, what does one have to do with the other? But they don't know anything about that, right? And these are some of the most impassioned people who don't understand that we live in a global market. These things that are coming in, let's say made in China at Walmart, that's got to be brought in from somewhere. And all of the produce that comes out of Mexico, yeah, pretty much, it's got to be brought in somewhere. So, yeah, pretty much every avocado you'll ever see in the grocery store is coming yes. from Mexico. <laughs> um, and there are folks within the Republican Party who would say that we should have so much border security um, and do so much uh, to try to stop a, quote, invasion. We should do so much that it doesn't matter if it hurts our economy. Where The Republican Party did not start out here on, on this issue. This is not what – George W. Bush had to say about it. It's not what Ronald Reagan would have said about it. How much reverence do you hear from Republicans about Ronald Reagan, the greatest president ever? Well, he, he was the one who signed the last amnesty for undocumented people in the United States. I don't think we've talked about this. I don't think he could get elected in a primary today if that was his record. Right. Um, but on this, it is interesting that at least – and Escobar is only one member of Congress. But there is some recognition among Democrats, Jeremy, that the, it, it is an issue that they need to figure out how to talk about. And they can't just say that Republicans are 
being ridiculous about that or not talk about it at all. They need to recognize that there are issues related to immigration that they could tackle. And I think Escobar's comments reflect that. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing that, you know, and she's coming from El Paso. Remember that El Paso, you know, fencing slash wall was built by Democrats and Republicans. That wasn't a Republican wall. That was like, you know, decades in the making from both parties. So, so it, it comes from that standpoint where like, you know, both parties have shifted their language on this. That makes it harder and harder to kind of do that, obviously. Uh, you know, the Democrats, you know, it's like it used to be agreed upon that. Yeah, of course we want border security, you know, but X, Y, and Z. Uh, but now it's not even that necessarily for some Democrats. Some Democrats are like, uh, border security, we're fine. It's like, you know, we don't need to do anymore. And so, so even that language is has changed so much. So it'll be interesting to see if like Escobar and, and people like Cuellar uh, can you know, have a bigger role in the Democratic Party and kind of pushing like the discussion on immigration. Like I'd be interested to see if those, mm-hmm. you know, folks along the border who represent those areas, you know, Tony Gonzalez, you know, the, the Republicans, like, if they could all kind of – you know, get something going that would like kind of lead the discussion on it a little bit more. I always, mm-hmm. you know, when I covered DC at times, I was always amazed at how few Texas voices and how few Mexican American mm-hmm. voices were in the conversations mm-hmm. when they were working on the big immigration, the, the big gang of eight you're talking about. It's like, I remember looking around the room and it's like, there's all these Cubans and Puerto Ricans <laughs> talking about how to deal with the Mexican border. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> it's like, maybe get some people from Texas and, you know, uh, in South Texas to kind of help you guide what is real, you know, what is the reality of how we live here? Yeah. With the uh, margins that the Republicans have in the U.S. House, I think it'll be important for them to bring in some of those uh, Democrats who could be, you know, be considered a little more conservative to have discussions about what they actually craft and do on immigration if they decide to tackle it, uh, you know, in Washington. Um, And, you know, bipartisanship is something that isn't just a tradition in certain places. It's something that's done out of necessity if you want to get real solutions uh, through a legislative body. So let me give you the example that's closer to home. You have now seen, and I just got a text on this, Jeremy, um, the Republican Party of Texas and other activists within the GOP want to see um, the elimination of Democratic chairman in the Texas legislature. Now, we're pretty unique. And I'm not sure that this happens in almost any other state. Just about everywhere else, if you have a Republican majority, it's all Republican chairs, right, of committees. And the opposite is true for Democratic states. It's all Democratic chairs if you have a Democratic majority in other legislatures. But in Texas, we are a different animal. We have a Republican majority in the House and Senate. And there are still, and I'm going to remind people of this, There are still Democratic chairmen in both the House and Senate, not just the House. There's a there's one Democratic chair now in the Texas Senate, and that's John Whitmire, who's also running for mayor of Houston. Just this week, Lieutenant Governor Patrick said that whenever Whitmire is gone, when he's not in the Senate anymore, and he's the dean of the Senate, the longest serving senator, when he's gone, there will be no more Democratic chairman. So I guess that means the Senate's still going to have a Democratic chairman in January. Just a reminder for all, the, all these folks who think this is only about the Texas House. So, wh- there, so there are even some members of the House who say we shouldn't have Democratic chairman. There's a – and I haven't brought this up yet on the show, but let's go ahead and talk about it. There is a – I'm putting speaker race in quotes. 
There is a symbolic race for Speaker of the House going on right now. There's a conservative lawmaker from Arlington. His name is Tony Tenderholt. He is challenging the current Speaker, Dade Phelan, who's from Beaumont. And Tenderholt has made the idea that you got to get rid of Democratic chairs. He's made that central to his campaign for Speaker. And I'm also putting campaign in air quotes. Okay. <laughs> this weekend, the <laughs> this weekend, I like to be specific about what I mean. The Republican caucus is going to meet to endorse a speaker candidate. And we'll see how that shakes out. I'm pretty sure it's going to be Dade Phelan. <laughs> you know, I don't make predictions, <laughs> but but that is that's probably a pretty safe bet. All right. Oh, um, the gambling if, hits. You know, the gambling hits from Vegas. We should never send you to Vegas. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We're, we're, we're slow to learn important lessons around here. Um, <laughs> this is a lesson that need thank you. This, this is a lesson that needs to be learned by some of the freshmen and sophomore members of the Texas House, particularly members like Brian Harrison. He's brand new, member from the Waxahachie area. And he was on Newsmax. And he was trying to explain to a national audience why it is in Texas that Republicans put up with having Democratic chairman of committees. And here's the way that he explained it on, on – everybody's always Fox or Newsmax or probably on Infowars at some point. This happened to be on Newsmax. And here's Harrison's explanation for Republicans – for people who are not in Texas because it's so important to all these other people outside the state – so why do they have Democratic chairman down in Texas? That seems crazy when they have you know, a Republican majority in the House, Republican majority in the Senate, and Greg Abbott, Dan Patrick, and all the other Republican candidates statewide, they all won their races handily, right? Democrats just almost didn't even compete in those races. So why in the world are Republicans in Texas sharing power with Democrats? Most importantly is that we respect the wishes of the Republican voters they gave us overwhelming majorities. Let me do a little thought experiment to educate your viewers on what's going on here. Kevin McCarthy, when he gets the gavel and is sworn in as speaker, imagine if he turned around to Nancy Pelosi and said, hey, Nancy Pelosi, I want you to chair Ways and Means. Hey, AOC, why don't you take energy and commerce, right? There would be an uprising from Republicans across the country. That would be preposterous. But this is going to shock a lot of your viewers. That's exactly what's going to happen in the state of Texas or what we're poised to do, where McCarthy is going to be removing Democrats from powerful House leadership uh, positions, the Texas House of Representatives, where we have where Republicans gave us overwhelming majorities, the House, the Senate, statewide, every statewide office, we are poised to give up to 40 percent of the Texas House of Representatives committee chairmanships to extremely liberal Democrats. It will be a slap in the face to the voters in the state of Texas. It's the number two priority for the Republican Party down here in Texas for conservative lawmakers like me to make sure that we respect the wishes of the Republican voters who sent us here. And even though we won the Congress federally, Biden still has the White House. Unfortunately, the Democrats saw the Senate. So the most important battles for the next two years are going to be at the state level, states like Texas, state like Florida. You know, Brian Harrison seems like a nice guy. I'm glad he's going to be in the Texas legislature. So now I'm going to explain to him, since he's new, why we have Democratic chairs. You have um, heard a lot of these arguments, Jeremy. There are those who will say, look, it's a, it's a longstanding tradition that there's power sharing in the Texas House and the Texas Senate, that when Republicans were in the minority, they had some chairmanships. And, and some Republicans will argue that, hey, one reason to give chairmanships to Democrats is because someday, because this is, you know, things change in politics, someday Democrats will be in the majority. And so you know, we would want them to treat us with respect, and we're treating them with respect uh, in the meantime. Um, that's one argument, but that's not why they do it. Um, here. Here's why they do it, because Texas government 
is set up not just to encourage power sharing, but to require it. And here's what I mean. In the Texas Constitution, to do big things, the Constitution says you have to have certain thresholds of support for something in the legislature to make this, you know, make certain changes. If you want to have a constitutional amendment, like we were talking about with gambling, a big thing like that, you've got to have two thirds of the House and Senate. And it's not just those present, it's a hard 100 votes. If Republicans had 100 votes, they could get rid of the Democratic chairman. My point is, if you want to do big things, visionary things in the state, you have to have buy-in from the minority party because you have to give them a seat at the table, right? You have to, you have to allow for Republicans and Democrats to be able to come together once they get through with their partisan stuff, which they'll fight about. And Jeremy, they will fight. You, you saw them fight all last year. The red meat buffet, as you described it at the Texas legislature. What was it that Republicans did not get that was on their agenda last year? Nothing. You can't think of anything, right? I mean, I can't. I cannot think of anything that they didn't get. These activists who want to see Democratic chairman done away with will say, well, we're not getting our, our priorities through the legislature. What did y'all not get last year? You, you got everything, right? And, and look, when Republicans are in the majority and Democrats do a version of this in other places, they can steamroll the minority when they want to. When they, when they have a priority that they want to get through the legislature, it will happen. If you want to see raw power in action, Jeremy, you and I have been there for it on the floor of the House or the Senate or it, watching these folks just I, – I, I remember back in 2013 when they were passing the big sweeping abortion bill, which of course at that time uh, we thought it was the, you know, the biggest regulation of abortion that we'd ever seen. And then uh, a decade later, it's outlawed completely. Uh, in Texas with no exceptions uh, for rape, incest, or age. At that time in 2013, they were doing things like regulating the width of hallways in clinics, right, to try to cut down on how many clinics there were. Um, but at that time, Jeremy, I'm on the floor of the Texas Senate, and Democrats are trying to be recognized to speak, and their microphones are turned off. Okay, so that, so it's not like – so to, 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 to answer Brian Harrison's concern here, it's not like Republicans just don't go on and do whatever they want in Austin when they want to do it. Power sharing with Democrats is necessary because our state's foundational document is written in such a way that if you want to do the big things, the, you know, the things that, for example, there's a proposal to have the state take over the city of Austin. Do you see this? There's a, and there was a bill like this last year. Republicans will say Austin is too liberal. It's too weird. It's too crazy. They do too many things that don't make any sense because they're, they're 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 so democratic. And so there are proposals to take it over and have the state to have a district of Austin, like you have the you know you have D.C. District of Columbia. To do that, to do a big thing like that, you'd have to have a constitutional amendment, which would be two thirds of the House and Senate. And Jeremy, Democrats are not going to vote for that. Right. The, the, there's no buy in from the minority party to do that. But let me let me say something that Democrats might support. Think of what we were talking about with Lieutenant Governor Patrick and the, you know, 40, nearly 45 billion dollars worth of surplus that they are going to have on hand to be able to spend in some way, which includes offering property tax relief to people. Right. Which is a Republican priority. And believe me, Democrats pay property taxes, too. If they're going to spend this money, there's also a constitutional spending limit, right? And if they want to bust that cap or find some interesting way to do it such that they can offer property tax relief to people, they're going to have to have Democrats vote for that. 
right? It makes it very tricky. It gets to where you can't do it with Republican votes alone because our state is set up that way. And if you don't want to live in a state that's set up that way, they could try to change the Constitution, but guess who would have to vote for that? Democrats. So we are going to have Democratic chairs this session, probably the next session, probably the next session, and probably the next session after that, because that's the way this whole thing works. Well, you've seen it in action, right, Jeremy? Well, and, and, and it's good, you know, it, 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 look, there's a lot of, you know, reasons for it, but in terms of just, you know, good governance, you know, it's like to get buy-in from, you know, the bluing cities of, you know, Houston and Austin and San Antonio and Dallas and Fort Worth and El Paso, you know, to get that input, you know, in the legislative process seems kind of important. Right. <laughs> it's like, you know, I, as much as I'm sure there's some folks in the rural areas who would love to just dictate, you know, what how the life has to be. Look at where the economic innovation is coming. You know, look at where like, you know, all this anti Austin stuff, you kind of look at it, and go, well, but look where, you know, all the tech industries move to. You know, look where the Army Future Centers picked. You know, look where Google, you know, picked to come. Look where, you know, Samsung is trying to build, you know, chip, you know, manufacturing. Mm -hmm. it's, it's all in this the $19 area. billion dollar plant. Yeah, all of that is mm -hmm. happening in Austin. Yeah, if it's out of step with the rest of, you know, of Texas, it's an economic engine, you know, that's helping Texas as well. And so there's got to be some point where it's like, I know partisan politics, like there are no rules. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, mm -hmm. you know you're going to say what you want to do, whatever. But in terms of the governance of things, at some point you got to figure out, okay, how do we do this where we like the people in our cities feel like they have a say in their government? And so like if, mm -hmm. if that means, you know, simply giving a few chairmanships, so be it. You know, at least you have some buy-in. So when you do start talking about bail reform or criminal justice issues, you do have a Democrat from a Houston area who can have some input in that legislation. You want mm -hmm. that for good governance, I think, you know, but maybe that's a really yep. glorious way well, to look at life. And it, it, <laughs> well, um, it, the, the, the thing that's really happening here is you have the Republican Party of Texas, uh, a group called Empower Texans, Texas Scorecard, uh, the Defend Texas Liberty Pack and others. It's essentially become the business of those groups. And I'm including the Republican Party of Texas as an entity. I don't mean all Republicans. I mean RPT, yeah. the Republican Party of Texas is uh, now in the business of punishing Republicans for not being, quote, unquote, conservative enough. And in their next primary elections, two years from now, this will come up. Any Anyone who voted for Dade Phelan is going to get beaten up as somebody who supports, you know, giving power to, quote, Democrats. Uh, that is a prediction I will make for you. Yeah. All right. Uh, one other thing. Uh, so rarely will I make a prediction, but I'm doing I'm going with that one. Um, should Donald Trump be running for president again? Well, he is. And you have to ask yourself what our Republican leaders in Texas think about that. We have one Republican from Texas who cannot help himself. He's running, right? Ted Cruz is running for president no matter what. That's the way it seems. That's, I'm just basing it off his own comments that he's, he has presidential ambitions, full stop. What does our senior senator, John Cornyn, think about it, though? Does he think that Trump should be the GOP nominee for president again? Listen closely, Jeremy, because his answer is very, very careful. He's free to run, and that's uh, so far the choice that he's made. But uh, 2024 is actually a long way off in the world of politics, and a lot can happen between now and then. Well, I'm still waiting uh, because we've seen uh, uh, we've seen very successful uh, governors, for example, uh, Governor Yunkin in uh, in uh, Virginia, Governor DeSantis in uh, Florida, 
And uh, of course, people like Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, Nikki Haley, a lot of great talent is going to be out there in 2024. Um, if President Trump is a nominee, I will support him. But right now, I think it's uh, there's a lot of uh, good candidates who uh, could well be our nominee. That is a long country road to uh, to an answer. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's a long way from, hell, yes, he ought to be the nominee. That audio uh, was from uh, Monica Madden at KXAN Television uh, in Austin. Now, Ted Cruz has a different uh, sort of tightrope to walk. That, that was that was Cornyn's tightrope, right? Cruz's tightrope is different. Cruz is trying to run for president once again as someone who can appeal to Trump supporters, right? So, so he has a different way of talking about all this. He was talking about, and he was interviewed on, where was this? I think OANN, one of those, it's another one of these networks I hadn't heard of before a few years ago, uh, similar to Newsmax. Uh, Cruz has said that the special prosecutor that's looking into Trump now was chosen for a very specific reason, and it's all political. Jack Smith was personally selected by Merrick Garland and his team. They know what they're doing. They want a hard partisan because they want to indict Donald J. Trump. This is the weaponization of the Department of Justice. It's an abuse of power, and it's wrong. Is that because they want to sideline him from running for president? That, absolutely. They hate President Trump. They hate him with a passion and they're willing to go to any length to try to defeat him. Jeremy, a friend had sent that uh, video of Cruz saying that to me and said when, when when the interviewer asked him, is this a way to sideline Trump? Cruz's face almost looked for a second like that that's a good idea. And then he and then he answered the way that he answered the way that he answered, which is yes, they want to defeat him no matter what. Right after the result in November I'm using that word. After the result in November, I spoke to two Republican uh, groups in Dallas and Houston. Um, and I often give speeches to Democratic groups, Republican groups, chambers of commerce, business groups, whatever. Go to scottbraddock.com if you need me to speak to your group. The, 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 the info is right there. Um, in speaking to these Republican groups um, here in Texas, you have a real recognition from the audience members, and I'm talking about people who are Republican contributors, people who are uh, Republican activists, there's a real recognition that maybe Trump's time has passed as a candidate. And what I mean is, when I would say, first of all, that if he was a musical act in Las Vegas, he should be at the you know residency portion uh, you know of, of his career, that, that, that his fans should still be able to go see him, but he shouldn't be on tour. When I would say that, Republicans would laugh and nod at that. They agree with that. A lot of them do. Not all, but a lot of them agree with that. And then afterward, I would talk to these folks one-on-one -on -one and they would say, Scott, the thing you left out is that he's just old. I said, really? That he's old? And, and, and I had a couple of Republican, one elderly gentleman in Dallas came up to me and he said, Scott, he's old? And this guy, the guy who was saying this to me had to be in his 80s. And he said, Scott, he's old. And if we're going to say Biden is old, which Republicans do all the time, that he's too old and feeble or whatever, if we're going to say Biden is old, then we have to admit Trump's too old. And it's time. And here, here was the bottom line from, from Republicans all over the place. Not all, but a lot. So many Republicans. It was the majority of the people I talked to anyway who were Republicans in the state. They would say it's time for something new. And you saw where there, there was the uh, poll. It was promoted by the Republican Party of Texas that showed that Ron DeSantis right now well, among GOP primary voters in Texas, uh, that he leads Trump in a head-to-head -head matchup. He would lead him by 12, I think 11 or 12 points. Now, this is only one snapshot in time. 
and who knows, a lot of people will ask this for, we'll, I'm sure we'll have to talk about this more than once, Jeremy. People will say, what's his shot of being the nominee? I have seen so much reporting on this nationally. And I, I hear these discussions around Austin and in other places as well and say, Hey, of course he'll be the nominee. It's Trump. He's just a, he's just a steamroller. He, 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 there's no one in the Republican party who can beat him. I think there's a couple of problems with that analysis. And I'll give you my thought and I want to know what you think. One is the way he became the nominee in the first place in 2016 was that he was in a field of how many Republicans with 20 people who were running for president at that time. And the way that the Republican party awards delegates toward the nomination is different from the way the Democrats do it. And the way that Trump was able to get the support he needed was in part because of this wide open field. He's announcing so early that he's freezing a lot of people out from running, right? Like, do you think that Greg Abbott is going to run against Donald Trump for president? No, that's not going to so risk averse. Now, if Abbott runs for president, it would be if Trump was not running. That's yeah. my educated guess. Cruz, you can't Cruz, you can't stop Ted Cruz from losing, so he's running, right? And then you have Ron DeSantis, who sure seems to be running. I mean, I can only think of maybe four or five Republicans who would be in the race if Trump's in it. If he's not, it goes back to wide open, right? Where you might have, who knows, 15 or 20 Republicans get into it. But if there's only five, it, the, the, my point is that not that he can't be the nominee, but it's a lot harder job for Trump to try to accomplish to become the nominee with a narrow field because Republicans in a lot of places are starting to move past the guy. Yeah, well, and and you know, I I would you know warn anybody to get too far ahead of ourselves on the presidential stuff. At this point in two thousand six, Rudy Giuliani was the you know well ahead of everybody else in the field to become the next Republican president of the United States. And so it's like obviously that never came close to happening. It's like this far out is just too hard to see. It's like we don't know what's going to happen to Trump. You know, does, does Trump make it to the ballot? We don't know. It's just like, you know, he may declare, but there's nothing that says he's going to make it. You know, if he starts to tank, you know, he pulls out just like any other person would. You know, it's just like and so we have a long way to go. There are candidates we haven't even heard of, you know, that are going to emerge at some point. You know, think about the Herman Keynes of the world, who once were leading the you know Republican nomination, you know, think about John Edwards, who came out of nowhere and became like a Democratic contender all of a sudden, or Bernie Sanders. It's like you know, people we don't know are going to have an influence in this presidential race uh, and may ultimately be the nominees that we deal with. I'm not sure I would put money since we're talking about Vegas and gambling so much. I would not put money that Joe <laughs> Biden and Donald yeah. Trump are going to face each other in 2024. I just would not do that right now. Save right. your money. It was in interesting. One of the other comments I heard uh, oft, oft repeated uh, by Republicans across the state uh, after that last result was that if it is Trump, then the Democrats might as well just nominate Biden again because he'll beat him. That was Republicans saying that. Either if, and, and when you if you look at uh, what folk, what uh, what uh, what has been found in focus groups um, that have been done uh, of Republican voters and Democratic voters, it's interesting that when you talk to Republicans, there are lots of different candidates that they will mention as people that they would like to see run for president. You know, if it's not Trump, on the Democratic side, they'll say that they're not sure about whether President Biden should run again, and in fact, a lot of them will say that he should not. Um, but then they don't have any names. The, the Democratic voters don't have preferred candidates just yet. So to your point, that is a lifetime away in politics. But at the same time, because of the way presidential campaigns are run now, if people are going to go for it, then they've got to start putting together their plan, their team, 
and what they're going to do. And like I said, I'm sure this is not the last time we'll have to talk about whether Trump is going to be the president of the United States again. So I'll, I'll put a pin in that for right now. It's so glad it's, it's, um, it's so good to be back here on the show. I know I'm a little rusty. We'll, we'll, we'll get going again before Christmas and then we'll take another break. Right. And then we'll get really rolling in January. We'll get it's as you said to me privately, Jeremy, it's a transition. You go from covering the campaigns and you get worn down by that. And at some point you feel like you're stuck in fly paper because you're just ready for this to be over with. And then once that's done, you build a government. And that's what you know, that's what's happening now. And you will see everybody come together in January. Everyone will act at first like they like each other. Like they'll, they'll work on building up relationships that they will later burn to the ground. And it will be glorious to watch it unfold. If this is your favorite podcast, and it should be, how are you not subscribed already? What you should do is tell three friends to tell three friends to tell three friends to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, however you listen to your favorite podcast. I saw uh, on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, Jeremy, that people were saying, this is the top show. This is the one that they see. It's not just me saying it's the number one political podcast in Texas. For the Spotify wrapped thing, it, I, I guess, and this will amuse Maya, I'm sure. I don't even know how to use Spotify. I, I think I have an account, but I don't, <laughs> I don't use it. But, but apparently Spotify will send people. See, she's laughing at me. Turn your microphone on, Maya. Are you are you laughing at me over I there? I can't believe this. I'm crying. All right, up. you are. You, you, I don't. I don't even know how to use well, it. Well, like, uh, speaking as a Generation Xer, how can you not have Spotify by now? <laughs> it's like, come on, is, this isn't just a younger person thing. This is like, you know, everybody's on Spotify. My grandparents are on Spotify. Come on, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know that people listen to us on Spotify. Remember when we first started doing the show? I had never heard a podcast either. So I'll get, I'll get there. But apparently Spotify sends you a notification at the end of the year that says, here are your top songs, yep. here are your top uh, podcasts. And I just saw it all over the place. People were saying, thank you so much for getting us through this year of the insanity of Texas politics. And all these people were posting the image of their Spotify wrapped uh, report that said the Texas take was number one for all these folks. So thank you all so much for that. And Apparently, Maya, that means that people are doing what I say at the end of the show, right? They're they're sending it out to other people, so the the you know the Ponzi scheme is working. Subscribe at quorumreport.com, HoustonChronicle.com, and we'll talk to you next time. Mm -hmm.